Today we are going to be considering Daniel chapter 9. At the beginning of that chapter, we read that Daniel was studying the prophet Jeremiah and found in Jeremiah the prophecies concerning the return from captivity and the length of that captivity as being 70 years. The first of those prophecies is found in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an, asto- and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And the second prophecy is found in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. In response to his understanding then that the captivity in Babylon was nearly at an end, Daniel turned to the Lord in prayer, and in that prayer he confessed the sins of his people and the righteousness of the Lord and in his judgment on them. I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but I think we should look at at least verses 16 to 19 to get the the sense of what Daniel is saying here. Therefore, Daniel 9, verses 16 and following. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate." O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel received an answer to that prayer in the vision of the 70 weeks that follows in verses 20 and following. And that answer was brought to him with the greatest possible speed by the angel Gabriel. Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So God, upon hearing Daniel's prayer, immediately sent Gabriel an answer and made him hurry to give that answer to Daniel as quickly as possible. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. 
So what we want to do now is talk about that 70 weeks. I'm not going to go into the different interpretations of that 70 weeks. If you want, you're interested in that, you can look up the various commentators on it and find out how this is uh, treated by different commentators from different um, uh, areas of the Christian church. I simply want to note at the beginning that there are some conservative commentators who understand that 70 weeks in a very literal way as being really 490 years. The passage says 77s. So 70 times 7 would be 490, and the uh, 7s are taken as years rather than as weeks. And some understand that 490 as a symbolic number. I'm going to understand it as symbolic, though there are some arguments, reasonable arguments, that make it, um, that defend the position that it is literal. I'm going to give you an interpretation which I've found in some of the commentators, but you should understand that this is not the only possible interpretation of the passage. In general, then, this 490 represents the time from the decree of Cyrus regarding the rebuilding of the temple to the second coming of Christ. But the passage splits up these 70 weeks really into four parts. And I think that the first seven that the passage talks about is the period from the decree of Cyrus to the time that Nehemiah finished rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and the people were reestablished in the land. That is then the time that God had spoken of in uh, the prophet Jeremiah. The end of that time came with the building of the wall of Jerusalem. The people then were reestablished in the land. And the first seven in this passage talks about that the tail end of that time when the people came back to the land but had to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem in order to defend themselves from their enemies and make themselves a secure place in the land. That's the first seven. Then the passage speaks of 62 weeks. And these, I think, represent the time from the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the first coming of Christ. Then there's the final week. There's one week left. You have the seven and the 62, which makes 69. There's one week left. And the passage tells us that in the middle of that second week, Christ died. It's a prophecy concerning Christ, and Messiah the Prince died in the middle of that second week. That's a, a very clear um, indication in the passage. So the, the final week, then, represents uh, the time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, and the first half of that week is the time from his first coming until his death. And then I think the second part of that week represents the time from Christ's death until his coming again. So the first half of the week is the time of Christ's life on earth and his earthly ministry. And the second half of the week is all the time in the New Testament period that follows that death of Christ. And I uh, say that regarding that final half week 
based on Revelation 12, verses 6 and 14. In Revelation chapter 12, we have the vision of the dragon and the woman and the woman's child. And the woman gives birth to the child, which the dragon wants to devour, but the child is caught up to God and to his throne. That's a vision of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the woman has to flee to the wilderness to escape the power of the dragon. You read about that in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That woman is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament church, which gives birth to the Christ. And then as she flees into the wilderness after the ascension of her son, she represents the church in the New Testament. There's continuity between the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. But she has a place in the wilderness for 1,260 days. Now, if you reckon that a Jewish year was 360 days, that 1,260 days is three and a half years. That's that three and a half that remains of that final week of the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. At least that's what I think is correct. And then in verse 14, you read about this three and a half again. And again, in connection with the woman's uh, flying into the wilderness. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So you have time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half again. So that's how I see it. The first seven is the time from the decree of Cyrus to the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, the 62 from the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem to the coming of Christ, the first half of the final week, the life of Christ on earth, and the final uh, half week or half seven from the ascension of Christ to the second coming of Christ, the time of the church's persecution by the dragon on the earth. That means that those periods are not equal in length, of course, especially that last period, which in Daniel is and in Revelation is represented by the number three and a half, covers the whole of the New Testament period, however long that period may last. Now the question is, what does all this have to do with the New Covenant? which is, remember, the main subject of our talk today. Well, there are various ways in which we have to see that covenant, the covenant of God, in this passage of Daniel. First of all, when Daniel um, spoke of the uh, judgment of God on his people for their sins, we have to remember that those curses, those judgments, came on the people of God because of what Moses had spoken of in Deuteronomy. 
And Deuteronomy, remember, is the book of the covenant. It's called the book of the covenant. And those curses which Moses pronounced on disobedience are called the curses of the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 15. Verse 21, Deuteronomy 29, verse 21, excuse me. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. So Daniel is thinking of those um, years of captivity in Babylon as the fulfillment of that word of Moses in Deuteronomy 29. The curses of the covenant of God have come upon God's people. And now Daniel is also thinking of the uh, renewal of that covenant in the return from Babylon. And so when he speaks to God, Here in Daniel chapter 9, he calls him the God who keeps covenant and mercy. Notice that. It's very important. In verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So he appeals to the God of the covenant and to the idea that this God of the covenant is a covenant-keeping God. And I think that in referring to God as the covenant-keeping God, he's thinking not only of the covenants God made with Abraham way back in Genesis chapters 15 and 17, and the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, but he's also thinking of the new covenant in Jeremiah. Remember, he had been studying the prophecy of Jeremiah, and it's in Jeremiah 31 that we read about that new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 where God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And in connection with that covenant, he promises in part to bring them back to the land. So Daniel is really saying in effect to the Lord, the time has come, I understand from the prophecy of Jeremiah, for that promise that you made to Jeremiah, to your people through Jeremiah, the time for that has come to be fulfilled. We should notice, as Daniel speaks of this prophecy then, of Jeremiah, that he's thinking in terms of continuity of the covenant. He's, there's reference to the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, and to the covenant made with Israel before they entered the land in Deuteronomy, and to the covenant curses in Deuteronomy. And then there's reference also to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 31, the new covenant. And these covenants belong together in Daniel's mind. And he's praying to God, now fulfill that covenant with Jeremiah that you made with your people through Jeremiah. And in the process of fulfilling that covenant, keep your covenant with your people Israel as you made it when they were at Mount Sinai. The old promises must continue to be filled 
in connection with the new and everlasting covenant which Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about. And the answer of God to to Daniel then describes how he is going to keep his covenant with his people. So that's the second thing we must understand here. Daniel is appealing to the covenant-keeping God for the continuation of his covenant with his people and for the fulfillment of that covenant that he had made at the time of Jeremiah. We also should not ignore that number 70 that appears here, the 77s. Whether that number is taken literally or figuratively, literally as 490 years, or figuratively in the manner that I have described above, the number 7 is significant. It's a symbolic number in the scriptures. We all know that. It is the number of the Sabbath day, the seventh day. It is therefore the number of rest. And rest, as we have seen in the past, is a covenantal concept. The number seven is the number of the fulfillment of the covenant. And God is saying then, in using that number of 77s, that this is the time for the fulfillment of that covenant. And when we look at Daniel, Daniel's vision in the uh, verses that follow, we see how the promises that God made to Daniel at this time are fulfillment of the promises made to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel and to Isaiah. They are promises, therefore, of the fulfillment of the new covenant. They are promises about Messiah the Prince, verse 25 of Daniel 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. So there are prophecies about the coming of Christ and about the fulfillment of the new covenant in that coming of Christ. And so in connection then with this coming of Christ, this Messiah the Prince, God speaks also to Daniel of atonement and forgiveness of sins. This is what Daniel prayed for and God says he's going to give it. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now that the first four uh, promises there are clear. Making an end of sins, making reconciliation for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, and so on. But the Sealing up the vision and prophecy may not be as clear. I think here what we have is the idea that the Old Testament way of revelation is going to cease, as we find in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read, 
that God is no longer in the New Testament time going to speak to his people by various at various times and in various ways. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the prophet, fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So, in the New Testament, vision and prophecy are sealed up. God speaks to us now by his Son. And he brings by his Son then the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, including this one in Daniel chapter 9. And the reference to the anointing of the Most Holy refers to one of two things. Some take it as a reference to the anointing of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the Most Holy One, therefore, and he was anointed by God to be the Messiah of his people. But others take it as the anointing of the new sanctuary, that is, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The old sanctuary was anointed with oil, for its cleansing. The new sanctuary is also to be anointed. The church of Christ is to be anointed with the Spirit of Christ. So it could be either one of those. And I'm not going to take a position on that today. I don't think it matters greatly how we do that. Christ, then, is going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and thus in bringing an end to sacrifice and offering, that is, all the Old Testament sacrifices and offering, he's going to confirm the covenant, the covenant that God made with his people in the Old Testament, and especially that covenant he made in Jeremiah 31. Notice that this is not a covenant making, but a covenant confirming. Christ does not come to make the covenant here, we find him making the new covenant at the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, and we'll get to that soon. But here it's the confirming of the covenant, and that's the, the covenant that is spoken of in Jeremiah 31, also in Isaiah 54 and Ezekiel 16 and other passages in those prophets. Those covenants that God spoke of, that covenant that God spoke of in those different passages in the major prophets, remember, talked about the forgiveness of sins. You find this, for example, in Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8, where God says, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 63, the Lord says something very similar. Ezekiel 16, verse 63, says that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done says the Lord God. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, part of the promises of this new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of is this, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
So God gives to Daniel a similar vision of the forgiveness of sin, of atonement. And he speaks very explicitly of Messiah the Prince bringing that atonement for his people. Now, another thing that we need to notice here in Daniel 9 is that it does also speak of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's in verses 26 and 27. And this is the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 70 AD by the Roman armies. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That's Christ's death, but not for himself. It's a substitutionary death for his people. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. That's the flood of the Roman armies. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That's Christ's death and the the bringing about of the end of all the typical sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Testament. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, that's the Roman armies, I think, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So that destruction of Jerusalem also fits into this passage, though it's not uh, the end, the very end of that week, I think, that final week. The destruction of Jerusalem, rather, is the beginning of the three and a half days that remain of that final week. And that final week then is brought to an end by the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some questions probably arise in this connection. What is the significance, for example, of that division between the first seven weeks and the next 62, which I said marks the time, the first seven marks the time from Cyrus's decree to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the next 62. That doesn't, from our perspective, seem very important, but it is important. And it is important because if you go back to those prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, you'll find that this new covenant that God has with his people has two stages of fulfillment in those prophets. Those prophets speak of restoration to the land, of the rebuilding of the temple, and of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that new covenant, which was given before the captivity in Babylon, remember, is, first of all, about that restoration to the land. That's an important point here. That new covenant is, first of all, about restoration to the land. But as God gives that promise of restoration to the land, we have seen that he also extends those promises all the way into the New Testament period. He says this is not going to be the end of the matter when you are reestablished in the city of Jerusalem. But you should understand that this is 
Um, part of my purposes, part of the fulfillment of my purposes, my covenantal purposes with my people in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this rebuilding of Jerusalem gets all wrapped up into the coming of Christ to build the new Jerusalem, to build the spiritual house of God, the church. So that division then is an important division. We see there's a a stage of fulfillment at the first seven, at the end of the first seven. And then the next stage of fulfillment comes at the end of the next 62. And the final stage of fulfillment comes at the end of the final week or the final seven. With a break in between in which Christ dies and brings in all the realities of the Old Covenant ceremonies and types. So it marks, these divisions mark the fulfillments of God's covenant. That's the point, I think. They mark the fulfillments of God's covenant, especially of the new covenant, which is one continuous thing then from the time of the return from captivity all the way until the second coming of Christ. We see this in those prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the passages we've talked about before, but we see it also in Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. Haggai was a prophet sent by God to his people after they had returned from captivity. They had begun to rebuild the temple, but had been discouraged by enemies from continuing to do that work. And God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to get them going again in that work. And Haggai says to the people then, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? And you'll recall here that in Ezra chapter 3, the people had finished building the foundation of the temple, and most of the people were very glad and shouted uh, very loudly, so that the land rang with their shouts. They were rejoicing in the building of this temple, but there were some among them who had seen Solomon's temple in all its glory. And they looked at this, the foundations of this new temple, and they said, this is nothing compared with Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? This temple is not nearly as glorious as Solomon's temple. And some of the people were mourning. And so God speaks his promise to his people in connection with this second temple. Haggai 2 verses 4 and following. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So God says, get back to work on the temple, be strong, I will be with you. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So God says, I'm continuing the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. I have not forgotten my promise. My spirit remains among you. Do not be afraid. 
But then, in verse 6 and following, the Lord does a very striking thing. He begins to speak of the glory of that temple. But it's very clear that he's not talking about the glory of that physical temple that the people were building. He's talking about the glory of the final, the spiritual temple. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about that new temple in connection with the second temple, the physical temple that was built in Jerusalem after the return from captivity. And he's connecting those two events together, the building of the second temple and the building of the final temple, the spiritual temple and the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And he says regarding that final temple, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Now one note about this desire of all nations that is mentioned in verse 7. In the uh, great um, uh, oratorio, the Messiah, and in the King James Version of the Bible, we do not read, they shall come to the desire of all nations, but the desire of all nations shall come. In this uh, interpretation of the verse that we have in the New King James Version, they shall come to the desire of all nations. And in the King James Version, the desire of all nations shall come. That desire of all nations is considered to be Christ himself. I do not think that is correct. I think what this means, and you can check this in um, a Hebrew uh, lexicon with regard to that word desire, that it means the desirable things of all nations. I will shake all nations, and the desirable things of all nations shall come. And it is in the bringing of this to this desirable stuff from the nations to the temple that the Lord fills the temple with glory. The desirable things of all nations shall come and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, that is the silver of the nations, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord is saying, all the treasures of the nations are going to be brought into this house. The people of the nations are going to come bringing their treasures to my house. It's a prophecy, indirectly, of the coming of the Gentiles into the house of God and bringing with them their treasures. And it's a prophecy, finally, of the giving of all things in heaven and on earth to those who belong to Christ. For you are Christ. Christ's and Christ is God's. And because of that, all things are yours. But this is the new covenant then. 
that he's talking about. That new covenant is fulfilled in part in that second physical temple that Ezra and the people of Israel built. But its ultimate fulfillment is in the spiritual house of God, the church of God in the New Testament. And that church reaches its perfection and its final glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That's when the house of God will be complete. And that's when the desirable things, the desirable things of all nations shall come into that house. All things are yours by God's new covenant with you. May God bless you with his word.